It is no secret that running in the heat can ruin your performance. As someone who's lived in the desert for a large majority of my life, I can tell you firsthand that even a few degrees can make all the difference. And seeing as we're coming into the middle of summer, I wanted to release an episode talking about how to manage heat and how to run well in the heat. I released most of this episode last year, and while it all actually still stands up, I also added an addendum of another an extra 15 minutes to the end with some new strategies and tactics in case you're still struggling. So if you want to know how to perform better in the heat, this episode's for you. It's full of strategies and tips, everything from basic things to some more advanced tactics for those who have a really high sweat rate. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Trail and Ultra Running Training Podcast. My name is Will Franz, and I'm here to help you improve your training so you can have more fun out on the trails. We are live. Thank you for sticking with me. Today we're going to talk about heat acclimation because it has just been hot for weeks and kind of miserable, and I feel like I know that we're theoretically approaching the end of summer, but I don't think that's actually true in practice. Like, I feel like we probably have at least another, like, month or so of this heat. So let's talk about heat and what you can do to at least mitigate the suffering a little bit. But before we get into that, I do want to say thank you for anybody who watches or listens to this. I kind of had a weird realization today that part of my job is to learn a lot of things about running and then talk to other people about them. And that is a strange thing for me, that anybody would want to hear anything I say, much less about running. And for those who don't know, like I am enamored with food and cooking and chefs, and that is actually very largely how I got into the training space. I wanted to not be a chef, but still talk to people about food. And... As a result, I have read that entire bookshelf is cookbooks. So I've read a lot of cookbooks. I love food. And Julia Child, if you don't know who she is, you should, said to Dory Greenspan, who's also a very famous chef, that we are so lucky to be working in food because we never stop learning. And that is actually how I feel about training that you are, I'm so lucky to be working in the fitness space, training, running, because we never stop learning. And that is especially true of such a newer sport like Trail and Ultra, where every year we learn new stuff. And some of that is about heat. So thank you if you're listening to this and watching this. Let's get into heat. So if you are running in the heat, you should spend some time getting acclimated to it because it can really tank your performance. And we're not talking... It doesn't have to be that hot to really cause you a bunch of damage. Humans seem to perform their best right at around, like, 60 degrees. And when we get higher than that, it immediately starts to cause problems. So... When we look at the difference between like 55 degrees and 85 degrees, that can create a 10% performance drop. And that is measured by the distance people covered in the span of 15 minutes. So yes, it was more of a sprint, it was more of a short effort, but that does actually seem to extrapolate. So if you were going for longer efforts, that seems to be more and more relevant as time goes on, especially because your core temperature is just going to keep rising to some you know, to some end. So if 55 to 85 can create a 10% performance drop, what happens when we start to get into like 95, 105, 115? It becomes terrible. So what are we really talking about when we look at heat adaptation? First, we have acclimation versus acclimatization. You might hear both of these words. They are technically different. Nobody actually cares unless you're a scientist. Acclimation is if you live in a hot environment, and you are adapting to your environment. Acclimatization is when you are trying to create these things by force, so like using a sauna. So what actually happens to your body? 
you see a reduced heart rate at the same like effort and temperature. So your heart rate doesn't move as much. What does that mean? It means you don't create as much lactate, so you don't have to use as much, so you don't have to clear as much. You are not going to bonk as quickly. You're not going to use quite as high a percentage of carbohydrate. All of these things that can create a or dampen your longevity on your run are less likely if you have some acclimation to heat. Your sweat rate is higher, which might seem like a weird thing if your sweat rate's already high, but you are trying to produce more fluid so that more evaporative cooling happens. You also start to sweat earlier, and this leads to lower body temperatures, right? Like if we're sweating, if we're seeing this evaporative cooling, if we're seeing this progress, then your body temperature is going to be lower, your heart rate will be lower, and you will do better. You'll perform better. We also see less sodium loss, so per like liter of sweat. So as you go through the summer, as you adapt to the heat, it is very likely that you might need to maybe maintain your sodium intake as you increase your fluid. And then on that note, you will need more fluid. Your sweat rate has risen. You are sweating more, not just due to the heat, but due to physiological adaptations to the heat. So you will need to probably increase your fluid while you less increase your sodium. So we need to be aware of that. Now, full heat adaptation takes maybe 7 to 14 days, depending on the person. That's really vague. So we're going to get to methods a little bit later. But the short version of that is it doesn't take that long. If you're looking at a hot race, or if we're listening to this in the future and summer's coming, then we can create some heat adaptation very quickly. So it doesn't need to be the first thing on your list to do. Now, I've been meaning to talk about this for a while, and then I kind of got distracted with other stuff, and then I kind of, and then I forgot. And so I'm sorry it's like August <laughs> as I put this out. I realize things like bad water or whatever have already passed. So a little late to the party here, but it in some ways it's for the best because I just heard a really good podcast from Corinne Malcolm on Trail Runner Nation, and she had a couple ideas I hadn't covered in the original draft of this, so maybe it all works out and we cover more stuff. Now, first, if we're looking at performing the heat, I think a lot of people get into, be it any environmental thing, and your head messes with you. So be it the heat or the elevation or the cold, you have this like identity as I don't do well in this thing. And if we're looking at heat, yeah, it does make it harder. You telling yourself that you don't do well in it makes it even harder. So let's try not to get too much in your head about it. Now, once we realize that we can make adaptations and plan and create some preventative measures to the heat, that often helps. And this is why we're having this. If you go in with a plan, just like anything else, be it your hydration or your fueling or whatever, then you will often do better. And some of that comes to the fact that your, your preparation has led to better performance. And some of it just is having a plan gives you less of a mental panic. So let's create a plan for heat if we know we're going to be running in heat, because at the very least, you're going to get some placebo benefit, which is great. Now, little caveat is that a lot of things seem to affect heat performance. There's definitely genetic variances. There are um, where you were brought up, like changes. So if you were if you were raised much like elevation, it seems like if you were raised in a very hot environment, you might adapt to it a little faster. Again, that might be placebo. You might just be used to it, but who knows? And there is also a, a sex variant. So women seem to take a little longer to adapt to heat than men. We're not quite sure how much, but it does seem to take a little longer. Now we're talking probably like 7 versus 10 days or like 10 versus 14 days. We're not talking like 
one versus four months, right? Like it's a fairly short time span. But if you are looking at creating a heat plan and doing some climatization, then you probably want to take a little longer if you are female. Now, what are the methods we might use to create this acclimatization process? Well, anything that aggressively elevates your core body temperature is going to help. Let's start with that. So if you do runs in the heat, you will eventually acclimate to the heat. This is why, like, if you see people running in the middle of Phoenix, they probably don't need to go and step in the sauna after because they're running in a temperature that is fairly close to the sauna. So if you're already adapting naturally to your surrounding environment, you might need to do a little less work here. But this also depends where you're racing. If you're going to be racing or running in an environment that is much hotter or drier than where you are, you might want to spend some time here. So the ideal version would be a dry sauna. Now this is a sauna without, without steam. We're not putting water over coals. This is what you'll find in quite a few gyms. You'll often see this called a barrel sauna or a finished sauna. They're often like 160 plus degrees. The one I was in today was like 190. And you go in there and you spend some time in there and you will adapt to the heat. There's a bit more to that protocol because I, if you're just doing sauna and you're trying to create a like heat acclimatization in a week, you probably need to spend every day about one to two hours in there. But we can fast track that process. If you're running anyway, you just tack on 20 to 30 minutes at the end of your run because your run already elevated your internal temperature and your heart rate. And then as soon as you're done with your run, and by as soon as I mean like 20 to 30 minutes, your heart rate doesn't, or your temperature doesn't immediately plummet as soon as you finish your run. So you got like 20 to 30 minutes, get in the sauna and continue sweating. So use that kickstart that you got from exercise and then continue it in the sauna. And we're talking 20 to 30 minutes pretty much every day for about a week. Now, once we have created that adaptation or like gotten that initial phase, we want to maintain it. And you don't need to do it every day, but it looks like just like we see VO2 max start to drop off in like three to seven days, we also see heat. Like these quick adaptations also fall off fairly quickly. And you can maintain them by doing a little bit of work fairly regularly. So for sauna, it would be if it takes about a week to create that original adaptation, every three days for 20 to 30 minutes at the end of the run should maintain that adaptation. Now, if you don't have access to a sauna, understandable, a lot of gyms have them and often they're pretty cheap. So one of the gyms where I work has a dry sauna. The gym membership per month after initiation fee costs like 10 bucks. It really could be worth it for you if you have an A race coming up in the heat. If there's something like that near you, check it out, right? Like this is an option. You don't have to do anything else at the gym. It is a $10 sauna that creates that heat adaptation. We can also use a steam room, but that tends the humidity, the like level of humidity in there actually limits your ability to spend time in there. If you run in the humidity, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And Yes, it feels hotter than like mentholated air that is often in there feels very nice. I like a steam room, <clears throat> but from a pure heat adaptation standpoint, it is not as good because it is very hard to spend as much time in there. It is also not as hot. So while it might feel hotter, you're not actually getting your core temperature up as high as quickly. We see the same thing with infrared sauna. They feel very warm. They're very good for you. They have a lot of health benefits. They're currently being studied very highly. They definitely do something on this end. Anything that raises your core temperature does something to create heat stress. But it's not as hot as a dry sauna, so it is not going to be quite as beneficial for the purpose of creating this heat acclimatization.
we see a similar thing from hot baths and hot yoga. Like it is the exact same story. We don't need to dive into it super deep. But if you love Bikram yoga, great. It's an hour and a half practice. You could easily do that multiple times a week and create a heat adaptation to it. Same with a hot bath. These things clearly don't need to be 180 degrees, right? Like a bath would boil you at 180 degrees. That is the temperature where you brew green tea. Like if you've ever spilled fresh green tea on yourself, it's really hot. So, and it might burn you. You're looking more like 105, 106 for like a jacuzzi or spa or whatever we want to call it. And the reason is water is a better conductor than air of temperature. So it doesn't need to be as hot to create a very similar heat stress. But it should be somewhat uncomfortable. It shouldn't burn you as you get in. But as when you get in, those first like five, ten minutes should be a struggle. You should have to basically force your limbs under there. You'll often like find yourself in a bath, arms floating, knees coming out, something like that, because it's just too hot to maintain. This is the kind of temperature we're really looking for. Like a little rough in order to create this adaptation. You'll also see a lot of people overdressing, where you go do a workout or a run probably already in the heat and then you put on like all your winter clothes and so you'll have like a sweatshirt and a hoodie and a down jacket and then a puffy and you'll have all that on while you go run in like 90 degree temperatures and yes that will absolutely create heat adaptation it is also going to tank your workout a little bit so this is a strategy you want to use i would actually use it at the end of your workout just like you use the other one like go do your workout then throw all that stuff on and just kind of walk around in the heat. Suffer like a sauna, right? Like just treat the environment as your sauna with all these extra layers on. Otherwise, you're going to see a drop in performance in your workout, which should will negatively affect your speed and your ultimate adaptation you're trying to get from that workout. Your hot car is another version of this. And I can easily turn my car into a sauna I don't have air conditioning, so if I need to take a phone call on my like Bluetooth in my car, then I will have to shut all the windows, <laughs> and my car turns incredibly hot. I will get like 10 minutes down, and I'm sweating more than if I got into a sauna. Right? Like We know that like, babies and dogs and all these like more sensitive creatures can die in the car very quickly, and there's good reason. It's hot in there. So if you have a very hot environment, then when you get done with your run, you can easily just trap yourself in the car without turning the AC on and drive home. Be safe. Please don't be dumb. Don't do this if there's other people, other sensitive people in the car with you. Don't do this to such a degree that you get dizzy and woozy and crash your car. But you can boost your heat adaptation a little bit that way. And then stories, like people will do anything to boost the seed adaptation. Jason Coop tells the stories of 20 years ago when people were prepping for bad water and like saunas were not very common. People would like take their, <laughs> they would take the dryer and remove the vent from the wall, aim it so it plays directly in their face and then do a bunch of like cycling workouts in their dryer room with the dryer pointed at their face and all the doors shut. Like, People have tried everything to create this adaptation, and technically it all works. You just need to do something that like fits your but like fits your budget, fits your time scale, and also like <laughs> makes you hot, right? Like it needs to make you hot, it needs to fit your budget and your time scale. Now, if we're looking at something like a sauna, it is hot. 180, 190 degrees is very hot you might not be able to get in there for half an hour on day one. So you might need to ease into it. And this goes a little bit in timing because you don't want to start this like two weeks before your race. This is a thing you want to start during like a mild deload week, probably about a month and a half out so that you're not adding a ton of extra stress to an already stressful training cycle. And then you'll boost your heat adaptation and then just try to maintain it through the rest of it. Don't start heat adaptation in the middle of your peak week for volume or intensity. We want to start it much farther out than that during a deload, knock out the seven days, and then do that three-day repeat. You can't really get like extra heat 
acclimation from spending more and more and more time in the heat. Once you get acclimated to a certain level of heat, you're acclimated. The things we're actually creating, as I said earlier, are like an increase in blood plasma. You can't end up with infinite blood plasma. So once you've created this adaptation, it's there. You just need to maintain it. So find a down week near the end and boost it. And in fact, you can start this as early as you want. As you want. This could be somewhat of a yearly, like year-long practice for you. If you have access to a sauna, it is one of the healthiest things you can do. They've shown from studies in Finland that saunaing like four to seven times a week has an incredible, like unbelievable 30-some percent or something effect on all-cause mortality. And then even a day a week boosts your, or like drops all-cause mortality quite a bit. Being in the sauna is very good for you. If you have access to one, you should probably do it anyway. And if we're using it um, for heat acclimatization, then we can just do that and just maintain that on a fairly yearly basis. And then as we're going into summer, just boost it for a little bit and then continue to maintain it. I have heard from some people that if you do two rounds of this, well-timed around your race, like one seven-week span or seven-day span about two months out and then maintain and then another seven-day span about like two to four weeks out and then maintain that might create a slightly better adaptation. I don't know why this would be. Maybe. I think what that probably does is like even with your three-day boosting, there's still a slight degradation. So if you boost it two months or if you create that adaptation two months out and then maintain it, you might get like an extra kick if you're prepping for something like bad water. But I feel like for most people, unless you're running in 130 degree temps, a basic seven to 10 day like initiation period with three day maintenance makes a ton of sense. Now let's get past oh, prep, right? So once we're approaching closer to race day, we have a ton of strategies that's going to be helpful, but all of them work on a couple basic principles. One is staying hydrated, which we'll get to at the end. The other one is increasing evaporation, because that is why sweating works. You create a bunch of fluid, it evaporates off you, and it works like evaporative cooling. Your body <laughs> creates a swamp cooler, and this is why humidity sucks, because it doesn't let that evaporative cooling actually work. It just traps on you, and you stay moist, and then you don't actually get any better. You're just gross. So this is why humidity is not helpful. The other way it works is temperature, temperature gradients. So if your core is really hot and out here is really cool, then that blood is going to cycle, and you're going to bring the cool blood into your core, which will help cool your core a little bit. So that is what we're really looking for anyway, and that is why we can still perform some of this stuff in the humidity, because a temperature gradient idea works. It's just not going to be quite as effective as it would be if we have evaporation as well, right? So if we look at an athlete that's recently ran a race, it's a night race in Phoenix, he stepped on the start line, it was 110 degrees. Like, what do we do there? And the biggest thing was stay wet. <laughs> you need to get wet. And this is a big principle at Western states, too. If you are constantly dipping yourself in streams and pouring water over yourself, if it is a dry environment, staying wet is a really good idea because it will pull all of that heat out of you need to use that evaporative mechanism if we're running in the desert or the or like a drier environment in the summer. So stay as wet as you can. Granted, you don't want to be using a ton of the water that you need to be drinking and pouring it over yourself. But if you have extra, let's use it. This is not as good of an idea if you're running somewhere like Florida. It's just going to feel oppressive. But if we're running somewhere drier, then the evaporation idea needs to happen. Okay. And if we are running somewhere more humid, we can use that by stay cold. 
So another idea that works across the board is ice. Put ice in your hat, put ice in your neck, put ice on the other side of your neck, try and get veins and arteries and everything we can possibly do. Whatever feels good to you. I hate stuff around my neck. There's no way I could wear one of those bandanas. Like, I, I just feel like this doesn't make me feel great, and it's myself. <laughs> There's no way that I could do that, but it helps a lot of people. Put ice in your hat, um, put ice in your bag. I heard from Corinne, she, I guess she learned this from cycling, was ice socks. If you have a uh, team, then, like, pantyhose are fairly cheap. Get them, create little, like, softball-sized things of ice, put them in your bag, put them in your sports bra if you're a woman, and it will slowly melt, keeping you cold, and then you won't end up with anything other than, like, a little piece of pantyhose. And the ice is gone, right? So this is a great idea. Now, you also want to cover yourself. So aside from, like, putting ice everywhere and trying to keep yourself cold, oh, addition to that, sorry, backtrack, in addition to having ice, like all the normal places you see people put it, I think we underappreciate the ice in the hand strategy. So this skin, the glabrous skin on our hands, the stuff that doesn't grow hair, so hands, bottoms of your feet, this like area on your head and your face that doesn't grow skin, or hair rather, doesn't grow hair, that has a direct cooling mechanism to your brain. So if you're overheating and we can get those areas cold, that has an incredibly big effect compared to like, getting your left shoulder cold, right? So one thing that can be super helpful is having frozen water bottles or just like grabbing a handful of ice as you leave. And you want to get them cold. Like we should feel like if, you're, if your pacer or your crew touched your hand when that was gone, it should feel cool or cold to the touch. And that will help. That will help bring down your core temperature in fact, it might bring it down a little too fast, but it can definitely help, especially if you're in panic mode. But doing that at every aid station, having some ice in your hands until they start to feel cool, can really help regulate your core temperature. Another thing that we can do, cover yourself, right? Like solar radiation just skyrockets your core temperature. If you've ever spent any time in the difference between like covered cloudy sea level and then top of an 8,000 foot peak, it could be the same temperature, it could be the same environment, except for the fact that you are that much closer to the sun. It is aggressive. It feels really oppressive. And you are much more likely to get a sunburn, which raises inflammation, which also raises your temperature. So try and not get sunburned and cover yourself from the sun. Now, we could use sunscreen, which is probably not a bad idea because, you know, skin cancer and all sorts of things. But it isn't the best for while you're running, because a lot of the chemicals in your sunscreen prevent you from sweating. And mineral sunscreen, because it actually blocks your pores, prevents you from sweating. So it can actually prevent you from being able to create that self-cooling mechanism. So use sunscreen as needed, but we want to mitigate it or minimize it as much as possible. And you're much better off getting a like, very thin white like arm sleeve that we can cover with, or a hat that covers, like look at people who run in, look at photos of people who run in Badwater 135. They're covered head to toe in white clothing because it's reflective. And that is more or less what you need to look like if you're running in the sun. Yes, a lot of people run shirtless, it feels really nice, but it's probably not your best bet. Now, what type of fabric should we, we be wearing? There's some debate on this actually, for years, We've always said, wear the tech stuff that helps evaporate faster. And there's definite truth to that. I've heard that ag very aggressively, the people do not want you to run in cotton from very good coaches. And for the most part, that tends to be true. However, if you're very hot, <laughs> a very dry environment, this might not be accurate. <clears throat> because cotton will actually hold the water longer, which if you have two hours between an aid station and a very hot, dry environment, that could help keep that water on you and boost that evaporative cooling a little longer. This is not a thing you should try on race day. You should try this during some of your prep. Go out, 
try different types of shirts, try different like kits, different gear, and see what works for you. If you're in a very humid environment, you absolutely don't want to wear that. You want the stuff that's going to evaporate as fast as possible. If you're in a cold environment, you want the stuff that's going to evaporate as fast as possible because you don't want it to like stick to your skin and increase your risk of hypothermia. However, if you're in a very hot, dry environment, you might actually want something that holds onto that water so that you can stay wet longer and get a boost of that evaporative cooling. So don't wear extra stuff. Fabric aside, we want it to be light, we want it to be simple, we want it to be easy. If you look at the things people wear when they're running western states, like they've cut holes in it, they've cut it down, they're tr acting like backpackers on the Appalachian Trail, minimizing everything as much as possible. So we want to keep it minimal. And if we're getting wet and putting ice on ourselves and constantly like dripping water everywhere, this can clearly cause problems. We know that wet shoes can lead to blisters and the chafing and all these things. So lube up, prep, have more lube, <laughs> make sure that you are well set up to avoid chafing. And just make sure that you're taking care of yourself and prepping accordingly. Because the water, the, all the liquid, all that on your body is going to keep your core temperature down. But we don't want that to cause another problem. Now, another thing that I heard from Corinne was, uh, that I hadn't heard before was menthol. So I've talked about how carbohydrates, not flavors, not sugars, not sweetness, not whatever, just in flavorless carbohydrate, swished around in your mouth and spit out can lead to a boost in performance because of these sensors in your mouth that sense carbohydrate and have a direct trigger to your brain. This is a thing we've talked about. So there are other things that have similar mechanisms, and menthol is one of them. It triggers an immediate I'm cool reaction. So when you take in mint or menthol and you have that like almost sharp bite that reduces cooling. Now, if you're near the end of your race, something like that could be really helpful. Like this is gargling and spitting out some alcohol or um, uh, mouthwash or something could be helpful, like getting that menthol reaction. But it can also reduce your sweating because it tells your body that it's cooler than it is. This is not a thing I would over leverage, but if you are near the end of the race trying to bring like down and get across that finish line, that could be a tool for you. And then don't overthink it too much. Like we can get too cold. So one thing Corinne mentioned was like an ice slurry. So if we think of like the slushy ice, the good ice, the stuff that people love to chew on, that can make everything very, like a liquid very, very cold. And I think many of us have probably had that reaction where something very cold hits the stomach and then it just doesn't feel right. It's almost like aggressively cold. It's too much. If you get that, you can also get that reaction to stop sweating as well because you'll get this trigger inside your stomach that you're cooler, you're not as hot as the rest of you thinks you are. So you're probably better off just putting basic ice into water and drinking cooled down water. Finally, hydration. You need to hydrate. If our sweat rate has increased, if we've done all this heat adaptation and we have, if we're bleeding more water, we need to intake more water. So make sure that you take your sweat rate a couple times throughout the year. You should know what it looks like in winter. You should know what it looks like in a transition season. You should know ideally what it looks like in your race conditions, and if that's not feasible, we should have a few different sweat rates that can like help us create either a linear or nonlinear path to help us replicate race day. So if you sweat half a liter an hour at 30 degrees Fahrenheit, and then three quarters of a liter an hour at 60 degrees Fahrenheit, and like one liter an hour at 90 degrees Fahrenheit, great linear progression, we can figure that out. You can set up a good plan. It doesn't matter what your numbers exactly are, but we know that there's that increase, and we can figure 
out how to make that work. If you don't know how your sweat rate changes through different temperature, you have no chance of hydrating well. You're just guessing. You're always guessing if you don't know your sweat rate. But if you're not also figuring out the changes, then you're guessing when it could really matter. Most people struggle to eat in the summer and the heat during their races because they're dehydrated. So figure out your hydration and everything else will get a little easier. As I said earlier, sodium is a little trickier to dial in. It's always trickier to dial in. There's a big spectrum. If you initially need, like the beginning of the summer, you might need a huge boost in sodium to get yourself through a couple weeks. Then as your body adapts and you start to lose less sodium with your sweat, we might need to titrate this down. And I saw this with a couple athletes this year where beginning of the summer, we needed to crank their sodium to keep them hydrated. And then as the, like a month later, we need to cut it back down. And this is just how the human body works. It reduces your sodium output. So you don't get, so you don't lose as much as we adapt to heat and need to make sure that we're correspondingly adjusting our intake to deal with that. Now you can either get a sweat test at a lab like Precision Nutrition, or you can just te- keep trying a few different things and finding what works for you in your long runs. And unless you're really struggling, you should, you should definitely start with the latter. Now, I think that's about it. Make sure that your hydration's on point. Prep work. Um, if you really need it, you can prehydrate, so add some extra sodium. If you learn that your sweat rate in the summer is that of Someone I used to know in Tucson where it's like 12 pounds in an hour, which is like over three, it's like three liters an hour, uh, or sorry, more than that. Uh, it's a lot. So we lost like 12 pounds in an hour in the summer in Tucson, and that is going to be really hard to recover. Impossible. It'll be impossible to recover. So if you are going to be that high of a sweat rate, then you will need to intake a bunch of sodium and some carbohydrate and maybe some other stuff beforehand to help prehydrate you. And that is a much more like dialed in strategy. But if you need to go that route, message me and I'm happy to help you out. First off, I fully intended to actually do another recording on heat stuff. Um, I've learned a lot in the past year. And that said, I listened to that recording I put out about a year ago on heat and everything really holds up. So I just decided to re-release it and do an addendum. So for anybody just listening to it, this probably sounds different is because I'm in a different location and the last one had arguably better sound dynamics. It's a little more echoey here. I'm working on it. That's what's going on. And I also wanted to make a couple corrections from the original recording. Um, One, I said precision nutrition, which is a nutrition certification I have when I meant precision hydration. Doesn't matter. And then I also told a story about a guy losing 12 pounds an hour through sweat. It was eight. Uh, He lost 12 pounds in a Bikram yoga class, but that's a 90-minute class, not an hour, so that's what's going on. All right, let's get into the addendum on heat. First, I'm going to double down on a couple disclaimers here. I am not a doctor. I'm not a dietitian, And you should probably speak with somebody, especially before doing weird stuff with your training. That said, some people, including some people I coach, have sweat rates far beyond what you can replace per hour. Now, I do not have perfect advice on this. We're actually working on it. We're going to do some experimentation this year and see what happens. Um, It is tough to get approval for some of the studies you would need to do to see what the correct course of action is for these higher sweat rates. If you told an institutional review board that you were like your IRB, that you were going to give someone the recommended daily allowance for salt, like every hour for a day straight, it'd be very unlikely they wouldn't approve you because they think you're going to kill the person, which you might. Um, Even if there was money to be made in it, it would be hard to get the approval. Further, um, it's going to be hard to like get the approval from a money perspective. Like other than high level sports, it is going to be tough to like justify the expense of a study like this for 
a lot of like salt or anything supplementation. So we're just not going to get a 24-hour study on salt intake. So it's tough to say. I don't have perfect recommendations for this. I'm going to tell you what I know, and then you are going to have to go off on your own. So again, not a doctor nor a dietitian. So I want to talk about glycerol, and I want to do this one first. It is arguably not the first thing you should try, but I heard people mention using glycerol for hyperhydration for a while, for like a couple of years before I actually knew what it would take or what it would involve, right? And it has really fallen out of favor for a couple of reasons, largely because it was on the water banned list for a while. As of this recording, it is not currently prohibited by any organization, as far as I can tell, um, but it largely fell out of favor as a result of getting on that banned list. There are also other strategies that people use, like sodium-induced hyperhydration that can serve you really well. I don't train professional athletes, so it's not something like, I don't know the WADA band list like the back of my hand. Um, if you're in a very high-level race and you think you might get drug tested, then always check for everything. But these things can, like glycerol, can be useful for prehydration. Now, I've seen a couple different dose regimens. One said 1.2 grams of glycerol per kilogram of body weight with taken with about 26 milliliters per kilogram of fluid and do that 30 minutes prior to your effort. Another recommendation said one gram of glycerol per kilogram of body weight with about a liter and a half of fluid one to two hours prior. I highly recommend if you're going to do something like glycerol that you weigh it out. Um, I also recommend that you go for the liquid over the powder version to prevent clumping because the powder will just turn into a paste. Um, and do it maybe 60 minutes before heading out, right? Like it is tough to say exactly how much you need, again, because a lot of the studies haven't been done. And these effort is not, this is not necessary for efforts under a few hours. In theory, um, this like hyperhydration effect from glycerol lasts for about four to six hours. And if you're going to be out longer than that, we can push a little more intra-workout to push that hydration. So one study I saw, you can re-up hourly with about a tenth of what you used for hyperhydration. Or if you didn't do the pre-workout hyperhydration, you'd use a third. So you do like 0.4 grams per kilogram for like starting from scratch. Now, if I were going to try this, like I would be like, I would try everything on the low end, see how I tolerated it, see if it even seemed to help, and then I'd go from there. So that would be one gram of glycerol per kilogram of body weight, and I weigh about 80 kilograms. So if I were being conservative, I would try about 80 kilograms of glycerol in about a liter and a half of water. 90 minutes to two hours before exercise. And then I would do a sports drink or a gel about 30 minutes prior. And let's see how I'd felt. I'd do this on about a two hour run, which is long enough to see if there's an issue, but I'd also stay close to like civilization in case something goes wrong. I wouldn't just like go for an out and back way into the woods without phone service. Again, there's not a lot of data on this. You're gonna have to be comfortable experimenting on yourself. And I don't officially recommend this, but it is, I also don't recommend getting aggressively dehydrated in the desert. So if you're a super sweater and you're going to do this sport, you might have to pick your difficulty or your hard. Like glycerol in most people is extremely safe. It is food grade. You might have some unexpected allergy. I have no idea. Um, the most common complaints are bloating and nausea. But if it's, ex which like most people kind of shook off, but if it's excessive, they'll obviously cause problems. And if you're doing this in the first place for dehydration induced nausea, you might just be trading the same problem with a lot more effort to get there. So look for food grade glycerin. You can buy it on Amazon. Yes, it'd be glycerin, not glycerol. I don't know. It's the same thing for some reason. And give it a try. Um, or not, but this is how you do that. Again, I'd heard this mentioned on a lot of podcasts. I'd never heard it really discussed. I'm going to link 
a couple articles in both the comments and the show notes, and you can give them, see, do your stuff for yourself, right? But this is a strategy you can use that's a little out of favor that some people still use, um, but don't talk about much. Now, you can also use sodium, which is a lot more in favor and for good reason, because you need it, so we can just push it a little more. The standard amount in studies is like seven and a half grams of table salt, which is three grams of sodium, because table salt is 40% sodium. And you, if you look at something like Scratch's hyperhydration mix, or like whatever they call it, the one that's passion fruit flavored and just has a ton of salt in it, that's about how much sodium is in it. It's because of these studies, they're trying to push that hyperhydration. And you can use sodium-induced hyperhydration to get the same effect as glycerol. Depending on the study, one can be more effective than the other. They also work on different pathways. So there are a couple studies where they combine the two, and they actually see increased benefits. Now, all of them had issues, from what I can tell. Every study I saw was only on young men. Um, the men were all otherwise healthy, and they're pretty small sample sizes. So outside of a lot of anecdotes, we don't really know how this would affect people outside of that demographic. We don't know how it would affect women. We don't know how it would affect someone with a health issue like high blood pressure or diabetes. Personally, I wouldn't try it if I had high blood pressure and diabetes because the sodium is probably going to hurt you aggressively, like badly. Like, I would not try it at all. Um, sodium will raise your blood pressure. So if you already have high blood pressure, taking three grams of it isn't a great idea. And in a population who doesn't consume a lot of like processed foods and moves a lot and is often pretty healthy, i.e. a lot of runners, then it's, gonna, it's not going to be a huge deal. But if you have high blood pressure, either from lifestyle or genetic stuff, then it might kill you. So be careful. Talk to your doctor. Do all the stuff you need to do to make safe choices. Now... Another thing that can help with hydration is creatine because it helps your body store more intramuscular water. In other words, it hydrates you. There's more water in your muscles, especially where it's going to be used, right? So a few months ago, it seemed like every running podcast was talking about creatine. And I thought like there might be new information. Not really. There was just a new study or two that applied everything that a lot of the bodybuilders knew to runners. So same stuff the bodybuilders have been talking about for 20 years, a lot of the runners like we're talking about due to some new studies that were applied to the population. So creatine causes you to store more water. That water is intramuscular, meaning that there's water where you're going to use it. So you're not like having to pull it out of your bloodstream. It's there ready to be used at about five grams per day. Um, you will be better hydrated. You will probably not have that much bloating and it can help you perform better. There is a lot more science on it, but that's about all you need to know. Five grams per day helps you hydrate more fully. Make your, like, you might get a little stomach upset for about a week. If that doesn't seem to go away, then stop taking it. Not everybody responds to it really well. There is this old mm, loading mechanism where people will say you have to take 20 grams a day for a week or two or whatever the bottle says. That is nonsense. Five grams a day. If you take it uh, by the end of the like two to three weeks, you will be plenty loaded on creatine and good to go. Now, there's an argument to be made for pre-exercise versus post-exercise versus in the morning. Creatine at best makes about a 1% difference in anything. So the timing at best makes about a 0.001% difference. Don't worry about it. If you're going to try the creatine strategy, just take it when you'll remember to take it. And then there's also like a bunch of different forms of creatine. All of them are nonsense, except for creatine monohydrate. I used to work for a company that pushed some creatine, doesn't matter, uh, a very specific type of creatine that they threw a lot of science at and tried to sell you. Nonsense, creatine monohydrate. That's why I didn't sell any of it, because it made me uncomfortable. So creatine monohydrate, five grams a day, give it a shot. It might or might not work for you. If it doesn't work for you, it'll probably work for your friend. Sell the jar to your friend. Also, carb load properly if you want to be hydrated well. Occasionally, I will see some 
keto athlete, right? Something about being bad in the heat or struggling to hydrate. And my only response is, yeah, man, like every gram of glycogen in your body comes with three grams of water. So if you are not replenishing your glycogen before you go out in the heat, then you are going to get dehydrated and you are going to struggle in the heat. It will be harder for you to hydrate as a ketogenic athlete. That is just basic nutrition science. And as a result, your temperature will rise a lot faster and you're going to struggle in the heat. It's not that complicated. There are a lot of different reasons to try a ketogenic strategy. Some of them are good, some of them are silly, but it's always going to lead to a higher risk of dehydration, which will subsequently lead to a bigger struggle in the heat. So if you do the keto thing or you're working on like optimized fat metabolism, be aware that you're going to struggle to hydrate and you won't only see performance decreases due to lower carbohydrates from a fueling perspective, it will also be from a hydration perspective. Anyway, those are all of the addendums I had on this. If you have any questions, please shoot me a message or drop a comment or something. I'm happy to uh, address it in another short video later this week. I hope you have a good rest of your day. Check the show notes for like links to studies and whatnot, and I will be back later with some more of this. I hope you have a really good day. Thank you for listening to the Trail and Ultra Running Training Podcast. Honestly, I'm still surprised and honored that anybody wants to hear what I have to say, so thank you. To be clear, not a doctor, nor a registered dietitian, or any other kind of medical professional. I'm a personal trainer, a nutrition coach, and a running coach, and I have a passion for training trail runners. You should always speak with a qualified medical professional before making any changes to your training or nutrition program. If you enjoyed the podcast or found it helpful, please take a second to leave a rating or review. I'd really appreciate it. Or you could just share it with someone for whom you think it might be helpful. I make these kinds of things in order to provide more quality, free resources to people, so the more people who hear it, the better. If you want more of this information, please head to the Trail and Ultra Running Training Group on Facebook, where we discuss all aspects of training, so you can have more fun doing the sport that you love. Thank you again for listening.